From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. Soil. We are made of the same elements found in it, but is it beneath us? Some think it's just dirt. Others imbue it with nearly magical spiritual qualities. There's an argument going on in philosophical agricultural circles, yes, there is such a thing, about the best way to use the earth to feed ourselves as climate pushes our resources to the edge. Today on the show, we hear four perspectives on how communities, big and small, might protect the soil in their communities and across the world. My first guest, George Monbiot, is a columnist for The Guardian. His latest book, Regenesis, argues for a post-agricultural solution to our climate woes. Published in 2022, it continues to be a lightning rod for discussion around how we'll sustain ourselves in the years to come. Welcome to the show, George. I'm so glad to have you. Thanks, Evan. Lovely to talk to you. The whole beginning part of Regenesis is this amazingly poetic, absolutely beautifully written love song to soil. You say that learning about the soil has taught me to a greater extent than ever before that we establish our truths from information that's patchy and shallow beneath which lies realities we scarcely imagine. Can you expand on that a bit for us, please? So soil is this thin cushion between rock and air on which the entirety of human society and civilization is built. 99% of our calories come from it. It's an extraordinarily complex ecosystem. Most people think of it as just stuff, but actually it's an ecosystem and it's more than that. It's a biological structure like a coral reef. It's built by the organisms that inhabit it. If it weren't for those organisms, there would be no soil. But it's also got properties unlike any other ecosystem or biological structure that we know. And in fact, there's uh, quite a, a heated debate among some soil scientists as to what soil even is. We genuinely don't know what it is. It's got some characteristics which make it seem almost like a superorganism in that they get these extraordinary synchronized events taking place right across the soil. So for instance, if soil carbon declines, the entire microbial DNA genome shrinks simultaneously. But at the same time, the number of RNA operons rises, suggesting a collective metabolic response. We just don't understand what this means. We don't understand what's going on there. But we do know that we are looking at a really mind-blowing and unique system. And it is an extraordinary thing that this system upon which we totally depend is almost unknown to us. And and because it is so unknown, to which we have been so inclined to heap tons of abuse. Yes, yes. I mean, we trash the things we don't understand. And this is never truer than when it comes to soil. I mean, you would think that this rather important resource on which everything depends would be something that we would treasure and look after, but we treat it like dirt. I mean, it's literally and metaphorically beneath us. And even studying it is considered a very unglamorous subject. 
you know, which is perhaps why there's no soil ecology institute anywhere on earth. There's no global soil treaty. There's treaties and all sorts of things from doping in sport to counterfeit goods, but there's no treaty on soil, which is literally at the base of everything. And as a result of this, we abuse it uh, mostly through the way that we farm it with slapping on far too many fertilizers, which can severely destroy soil structure, pesticides, which rip through soil ecosystems and can then help to destabilize the soil itself because it's built by the organisms that those pesticides are killing, and deep plowing, which can often lead to the breakdown of soil structure. And it can take a lot of abuse until it suddenly hits a tipping point. And when it hits that tipping point, that's what we call a dust bowl. And a dust bowl is when the rate of soil erosion rises massively almost overnight. Basically, when a major drought hits a highly degraded soil, the erosion rate can rise 6,000-fold. And in other words, the entire soil structure collapses. So it's a classic response of a complex system. Complex systems absorb stress and absorb stress and absorb stress and then suddenly collapse. And we're all aware of the Great Dust Bowl in the United States, but there have been many other dust bowls around the world and there are many threatened. And this threatens the entire basis of our survival. We can get everything else right, but if we get the soil wrong, we're kippered. So this this deep love and reverence and understanding uh, of, of soil is what has caused you to do this deep think on what we need to do to prevent that tipping point from happening. Could you tell us a bit about Ian Tolhurst? Yes. So um, Ian Tolhurst, or Tolly, as he's he's known to all his friends, is, is a remarkable man. He's a um, He's what's called a stock-free organic grower. Um, he farms on some very poor soil. It's 40% stone. And most growers just would not even look at it, which is how he managed to get hold of it because he, he had and has very little money. Um, but he's managed to turn this very unpromising small farm into a highly productive place where without any fertilizer or any manure, he's managed to hit the lower bound of what conventional vegetable growers produce on good soil. And he's done so through, well, 34 years of intense experimentation, trial and error, until he finally hit on what makes that soil work. And I think his key insight is that soils in in the UK and Northern Europe that we call agricultural soils are in fact forest soils. They're places where trees used to grow and they function much better when they think there's still trees growing there. And so as well as a whole series of really interesting and innovative techniques, one of the key interventions is that at a certain point in the rotation, he introduces a tiny bit of wood chip and it's almost like the litter of twigs and leaves falling from the trees. And that seems to mediate the relationship between plants and bacteria and fungi in the soil. 
And, and this is what, what will happen in a forest ecosystem, but that can very easily be disrupted when the trees are taken away and the, the land is ploughed up. And he's doubled his yields of vegetables. He's greatly enhanced soil fertility without adding anything to it except this tiny sprinkling of wood chip. Your book, Regenesis, is really fascinating because it goes back and forth between stories like this of, of Tully's, of, a, of an individual who has basically dedicated their lives to throw away a rule book that had been written by someone mm-hmm. else to do this intense experimentation and record keeping so that they can document when things have gone right but then you also paint a very bleak picture of the type of agricultural that goes on globally all over the planet. You bemoan so many ills that farming has given us. Are you advocating that we should save our soil by leaving it alone? In some places, yeah. Um I mean, we need to minimize the area of the planet that we use for farming. And and the reason for that is that the earth systems, our life support systems, depend on wild ecosystems. And the fewer of those that remain, the harder it will be for those earth systems to sustain themselves. Because like the soil, which is one of those systems, earth systems are complex systems, they absorb stress, and then they reach a tipping point and they collapse. And, And that's the point at which we are no longer able to live on most of the planet. So to prevent that from happening, we we need as much as possible to defend the systems which repair and sustain those wider earth systems. And those are, for the most part, wild ecosystems. And by far the greatest threat to wild ecosystems is the sheer amount of land that we use for farming. What we we have to try to avoid now is what I call agricultural sprawl, farming occupying very large amounts of the planet while not producing very much. And that is, I think, the greatest of all threats to Earth systems because of the opportunity cost, because it prevents the establishment of wild ecosystems across very large parts of of the planet. I think about so many solutions that have been called by so many different names, sustainable, regenerative, all these Mm -hmm. different kinds of solutions that people posit. But how do we convince societies to accept massive change? We, We can't seem to convince societies around the world about the most egregious harm done by the largest industrial livestock operations. I mean, it is tough. It's particularly tough with food because people almost form their identity around the food that they eat and they believe that any challenge to a particular diet is a direct challenge to their identity. But at the same time, I mean, the food we eat has radically changed. If you say, what's your traditional diet? They will reel off the traditional foods that are eaten in their region. And then you say, so what do you actually eat? It'll be completely different from that traditional diet. And we've moved, for better or for worse, towards what some people call the global standard diet. And this means that our food has become locally more diverse, but globally less diverse. 
So, for instance, here in the UK, if I walk into my local supermarket, I will see an incredible profusion of food, extraordinary diversity, which my grandma would have absolutely boggled at. She would be amazed by it. She wouldn't recognize most of what was on the shelves. And you think, this is extraordinary. What what a great wealth, what an abundance of diverse foods. But then if I were to walk into a supermarket 5,000 miles away in a different continent, I would likely see a very similar selection. It's the same range of food, often produced by the same corporations. And so, so while each one of us is confronted by more diversity, globally, there's less diversity. But, but I guess the point I'm making here is that there's been radical dietary change. And if we've changed once, we can change again and potentially change in better directions. So you now famously, since the book came out last year, talk about this one particular lab that is creating a kind of food out of fermented bacteria. Could you mm-hmm. could you talk about the people involved in that project and tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I try to sketch out in the book why I think that precision fermentation, brewing microbes in factories, is actually going to be an important and perhaps even necessary part of our food supply. And as part of my research on, on that subject, I visited a laboratory in Helsinki in Finland called Solar Foods, where they're working with a bacterium that's found in the soil, which has the interesting property of feeding on hydrogen. So it needs no agricultural feedstocks at all. You can produce everything within the footprint of your factory on a very small area of land with far lower resources, much less water, much fewer nutrients than you'd need to grow protein any other way. And it produces, which is basically the dead bodies of the bacteria, this golden-colored flour, which is about 65 to 70% protein. And that can be the basis of a whole range of new foods, some of which we can't yet conceive of, but some of which could make much better substitutes for animal products than, than, than plant-based foods can. But I asked um, if I could be the first person ever to eat a pancake made of bacterial flour. It was slightly vain of me to, to ask, I admit, but, and unfortunately I was thwarted in that because they said, well, we've got to try it before we let you try it. So I can say I was the first person outside the laboratory to eat a pancake made of bacterial flour. The remarkable property of this pancake was it tasted just like a pancake. And yet it was made with no agricultural products at all. And in fact, for you to be able to consume this flour, they had to step down the protein content of it. Yes, yes, that's right. Actually, yeah, the raw flour had no agricultural products, but we had to put some wheat flour in because otherwise you would have made an omelette rather than a pancake because normally it's the other way around. You start with wheat flour and then you have to add some protein and fat in the form of eggs and milk in order to make it a pancake. But in this case, it's got so much protein in that you have to wind it back. And so, yeah, we did actually have to add some some wheat flour and um and but I think it would have made quite a nice omelette as well because it smelled just like eggs. And the thing is that there's loads and loads of I mean there's millions of of, of microbes and there's loads of them which seem to have very really good food values. 
I went to a laboratory in Amsterdam recently where they're working with a bacterium that's pink and tastes and smells exactly like sausages. And you can just basically grow sausage meat. And it requires far less processing than it does to make sausages out of pigs. Are you a fan of cultured meat? Actually, I'm not. Um, And the reason for that is I don't think it's ever going to be viable. It's not going to come in at cost, and it's really, really complicated. There's lots and lots of different steps, a lot of them extremely difficult. But above all, in order to grow a steak or another cut of meat in a flask, you need to maintain clinical hygiene standards. And clinical hygiene standards are fine in medicine, uh, where there's a lot more money per unit floating about. But if you're trying to produce food at a reasonable price, they make it prohibitively expensive. The reason you need those clinical hygiene standards is that mammalian cells double every 24 hours, while bacterial cells double every 20 minutes. So unless you've got those standards, you're going to have a bacterial culture, not a mammalian culture. So so my answer is, well, why not just grow bacteria? It's so much easier. Have any of these labs that you um, had the opportunity to visit actually been able to offer a product to the public yet? No, because the ones I've been visiting are in Europe, and Europe has a pretty restrictive novel foods regime. I mean, we need proper regulation. Everything's got to be properly tested, but the trouble is it's very, very slow, and it can be suspended at any time. And of course, the meat industry is all over this, trying to stop it from happening. So it gets suspended and it gets left in limbo. So they're ready to go. They're ready to scale. It's all there and they could um, hit the cost curves very quickly indeed, but it's frustratingly held up in this sort of rather Kafkaesque regulatory system. I'm curious, um, in your mind, in, in your perfect world in which we manage to hold off climate change and not hit a tipping point, on our soils. Are we completely giving up on land-based agriculture? Oh, no, 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 by no means. I mean, we still have to grow grain. We still have to grow fruit and vegetables. And I suggest some new and I think some very interesting ways in which we could do that with far less environmental damage and potentially more environmental resilience. Because, of course, as you know, farming is, is severely threatened now by environmental change, particularly by climate breakdown. Um, and, and annual grain crops are, are especially susceptible. So, so what I'm really talking about with microbes is substituting for animal products. And the reason we need to do that is that animal products are disproportionately harmful in in environmental terms. They take up far more land, they produce far more greenhouse gases, they need need more of most commodities in order to produce them. And, you know, to feed ourselves, we're killing, what is it, um, nearly 80 billion animals per year. And that has got a very high cost. I wish we had more time to talk. Mm-hmm. Um, I Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. The book is absolutely fascinating and I've been a, a fan of your Guardian columns for a long time. 
Thank you so much, Evan. It's lovely to talk to you, and thank you for giving me a hearing. That was noted author and Guardian columnist George Monbiot. We've been talking about his 2022 book, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet. Coming up, The Rebuttal. My next guest actually penned an entire book in opposition to Monbiot's thesis. We hear his argument when Good Food continues. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Welcome back to Good Food. The act of eating and looking at how food is produced has never been more philosophically and emotionally fraught. As impending climate calamity looms and we become more aware of the limits of agriculture, the way we've been doing it, all sorts of food production interventions are percolating that will supposedly help bring us from the brink. Do we rewild the earth and put our faith in hedge-funded food simulacra startups? Chris Smage resoundingly says no. He believes that saying no to a farm-free future, the name of his latest book, is key to our survival. Hi, Chris. Hi. Hi. Thanks for, thanks for having me on the show. Oh, well, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Um, you were a social scientist who worked in universities and research institutes, but you made a pretty big pivot. Um, can you tell us what you decided to do instead and why? Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, I switched to being a small-scale farmer. Um, my wife and I bought a small acreage uh, here in Somerset in the west of England about 20 years ago. And um, for a lot of that time, we have been, uh, I mean, we've done various different things on the holding, tried to build a sort of diverse, small, local holding. But the main commercial thing we've done um, food-wise is running a small market garden, so growing veg, which we sell to people locally in the small town that we, we live on the edge of. So, yeah, I mean, I moved into it for, for various reasons, but largely, I guess, you know, late 90s, early noughties, um, kind of the preamble you just said, you know, the issues of climate change and energy futures and localism, biodiversity. And, and you know, we felt that the food system was at the, the heart of that. And we, we kind of wanted uh, naively maybe to uh, to be sort of walking the, the talk a bit and, and, and participating in that. Your book, um, Saying No to Farm Free Future, was written kind of in direct response to George Monbiot's book, Regenesis. Right. It's so unusual for someone to write such a direct response to another writer. What inspired that kind of passion in you? Well, I mean, you know, George has been a very powerful, eloquent advocate for uh, environmentally thoughtful um approaches including in the food and, and farming system and um i think he's kind of slightly gone off piste with his um recent food thinking and i guess 
some years back I sort of I've interacted very positively with him but I, I think he's gradually sort of bought into this kind of technocratic approach to the food system and yeah you know as I, I wrote a previous book called a small farm future where I was making the case for um, smaller scale more local more job rich low energy um, mixed um, farming as as a way forwards and you know as, as I talk to people about that at, at, at conferences and so on you know when people said well you know the elephant in the room is is George Monbiot's you know the the argument for manufactured food and so I, I kind of um, locked horns a little bit with him um, around that uh, online and then just the opportunity arose to to write a response and, and you're right it is it is unusual to write a book so directly aimed at somebody else's book but I think you know one of the issues is as I say he's He's been a very sort of influential, one of the few radical environmental voices who's got a real media platform here in the UK and and and, and I guess in the wider world. And so, you know, I felt it was important. Um, you know, I think there are some problems with his analysis, and I and you know, people who don't necessarily know that much about the food and farming system, I think, are apt to to follow his his line on the basis of the reputation that he's rightly built up. And so, I felt the need to. Um, you know, to put an alternative perspective out there. And, and that was basically the genesis of the book. So could you describe what eco-modernism is as it pertains to food production? You know, there aren't a sort of hard and fast definitions of it, but I mean, basically, I think it has various key elements. One is an emphasis on decarbonizing the energy supply, but maintaining energy provision at, at kind of current levels of, of abundance and price. So, um, you know, an emphasis on energy transition to, uh, you know, maybe to nuclear power or to renewables, but, you know, very much a belief that we can continue having a high energy civilization. The second thing is biotech, particularly in relation to food. So in the early days, it was very much focused around um, GM and you know, genetic engineering technologies. But as with George's recent book, the focus recently has switched more to so-called precision fermentation or the the, um, the synthesis of bacterial protein in, in manufacturing processes. And then there's a strong emphasis on urban so the argument is that we live in a predominantly urban planet nowadays and that that's kind of non-negotiable you know that that has to um, remain and part of the argument for that the, the, the final plank of it I suppose is looking after nature um, preserving biodiversity and the argument is generally that the best way of doing that is by people kind of separating themselves off from nature sort of dematerializing our footprint um, you know humans um, living in predominantly urban settings and um, you know manufactured food um, kind of high-tech food solutions and, and leaving as much of the the rest of the world to the wild creatures, um, you know, George repudiates uh, the the label eco modernist, but you know, all of those elements I think are are fairly key to his work, and and you know, the idea is that it's kind of technological solutions to contemporary problems that are, that are going to drive us uh, onwards. And and you have a different ethos um, that you have labeled agrarian localism. Right? Can you describe that to us? 
Right. Well, I mean, it's it's basically, um, I, I suppose, a lack of faith in all of those elements of eco-modernism that I just described. So um, where does that take us? Well, you know, most parts of the world have traditions of low energy input cycling, mixed farming, um, you know, that tends to combine elements of cropping, some livestock husbandry, woodland, uh, you know, so people living lower energy, more local lives where they are producing, uh, you know, more of their material needs locally. And, you know, my argument basically is that whether we like it or not, these big driving forces in the world today, climate change, energy futures, and a lot of the geopolitics and economic drivers as well, you know, are going to make kind of high energy globalized um, world and and globalized food systems that we, um, you know, have become accustomed to are going to make them increasingly problematic. And so, um, you know, I think people need to re-embrace locally and and the, and the possibilities of producing um, food locally and you know it, it's a huge and difficult transition but I think from where we are now you know anything anything that we do next is going to be a huge and difficult transition and I think you know that to my mind is going to be the most plausible uh, response that we can that, that we can make to, to present crises and you know to some extent it's based on a the, the observation that the modern food and farming system system is enormously inefficient in its overproduction you know it, it we're sort of like every part of the world is driven to produce you know what it can most advantageously sell into global markets the driver is about profit margins whereas if we're looking at local food production it's a very different kind of driver it's about you know meeting local needs um, and that can be much more diverse much healthier much more economically beneficial but there's no denying it's um you know the the the, the transition either way is um you know is going to be huge from where we are now. At a time when we see democracy under threat um, in many places around the world, what are some links that you make um, from this type of farming with smallholder democracy? Um, well, yeah, that's an interesting and, and, and complicated question. I mean, I think there is, um, you know, I, I, I do foresee problems with the kind of eco-modernist approach, which is top down, which is going to cede a lot of power to corporations and to governments um, who have control of the energy supply. I mean, uh, we, we may not have time to get into it, but there are big, big energy questions um, around the, the sort of manufactured food and the the biotech approach. So, you know, the, the alternative is to try and build more resilient local societies, you know, which are not subject to, to those kind of um, you know, bigger global forces that I think are going to leave, um, you know, leave a lot of people out in the cold. You know, there's going to be really big, hard geopolitics in the years to come, um, you know, between the major global powers and the, you know, the major producers of energy. And I think, you know, it's really important that people 
don't just take for granted the fact that they can go down to the store and um, you know buy whatever foods they that they need in the way that we've been accustomed to worldwide in in recent years. Um, you know, because as climate, as energy, and as these geopolitical realities, you know, which we're already seeing in terms of various global conflicts in the world today, you know, as they begin to bite, you know, that's uh, just not an assumption that I think will be wise for people to make. So we've really got to bite the bullet um, ourselves locally and start building up local capacities. And, uh, you know, that has enormous political implications, which I'm hoping to explore in, in, in future writing. But, you know, that's where it starts, you know, local politics of land, local politics of food, um, kind of not assuming that there is a, a global commodity supply chain that is, um, you know, that is just going to service our needs as consumers anymore. We tend to think in extremes, maintain the status quo with regard to industrial ag or dream of switching to agroecology in a major way. Is there a realistic middle ground that still makes a difference and goes some way to solving problems, do you think? I mean, there can be middle grounds. I mean, I, you know, I think one part of my approach, um, I, you know, I, I guess to many people it probably seems quite radical, but I think we need to think outside the box and, 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 you know, be aware that a lot of the assumptions we've made about the politics and climate and energy systems are, are not going to hold good in the, in the future. So, you know, so we do need to think radically. But, um, you know, there, there may well be, um, opportunities for middle ground solutions. And it, you know, it depends a lot on where you are. I mean, one important point to make, uh, about the manufactured food agenda is that it's based on the idea of low carbon electricity input to produce bacterial protein. So if you're lucky enough to live somewhere where you have good sources of low carbon electricity, you know, a lot of this stuff has been pioneered in Scandinavia, where they have a lot of um, hydro uh, electricity, then it, you know, perhaps it could be part of the mix. Um, but what will never happen is that it'll never be as easy to replace free low carbon sunlight as it is to generate electricity. It's always going to be more more costly and, and less efficient to energize food through electricity. So we need to make the most of sunlight. You know, historically, I mean, sunlight is free and low carbon, but diffuse, and so that means that people historically have been diffuse, and we've been able to concentrate ourselves in these huge um, mega urban concentrations because of um, fossil energy. So if, as I do, you take the view that, uh, you know, we're not going to have energy at the levels of abundance and, and low price that we've had over the last 100 plus years, um, you know, then we need to really fundamentally rethink um, settlement patterns and, and land use patterns. And that's where the, the agrarian localist argument comes in. But, you know, that doesn't mean, um, you know, that we're sort of going back to some notion of a, a, of a completely rural distributed uh, past or that there isn't um, possibilities of incorporating higher energy or higher tech um, types of agriculture. You know, ultimately, it's about how we can feed ourselves well and look after the natural world. But, you know, what I think we do have to let go of is a lot of uh, existing assumptions about um, energy, climate and settlement patterns and land use. Thank you so much, Chris. Such an interesting conversation. Right, thanks. Yeah, no, great talking with you. That was small-scale farmer, academic social scientist, and author Chris Smage. We've been discussing his book, Say No to a Farm-Free Future. 
In a minute, what does regenerative farming mean and how does one achieve it? We hear from a farmer who's doing the work right here in Southern California. Next. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. I've been in this game long enough to see agriculture cycle through labels and buzzwords, organic, sustainable, biodynamic. Lately, I hear the word regenerative more and more. And the Ecology Center in San Juan Capistrano has gone so far as to be certified. The 28-acre farm sits amidst the sprawl of Orange County. Founder and executive director Evan Marks joins us this week to define this word, regenerative, in what might be our most literal in the weed segment yet. My name is Evan Marks, and I am the founder and executive director of the Ecology Center. The Ecology Center is located on a historic 140-year-old farm in the heart of San Juan Capistrano, which is the heart of the region between Los Angeles and San Diego. We are a 28-acre regenerative organic farm operation, um, and the farm is really the backdrop for the context of building a culture that gives more than it takes. And so the farm uh, grows a diversity of about 200 different ingredients, fruits, vegetables, and flowers. All of them go through a village of retail, and cottage industry that creates value-added products from a cafe to fermentation lab and various pantry products to educational workshops, all the way through a farm school for children. And uh, really is a, a laboratory for the future and how we work together in harmony with the land and, and seeking harmony with one another. You know, I was raised uh, in Newport Beach as a surfer and my nature was the ocean I'm a first-generation farmer, and my kind of pathway from the ocean upstream and it's up through the watershed, and I was backpacking with my grandfather as a teenager and got really interested in the wilderness um, outside of just the oceanic one. But on that journey, I learned that agriculture was the number one impact and compromise to the health of our oceans. And as an aspirational youth, I was motivated to take a stance and move the, the statistic in a new direction. And I ended up at UC Santa Cruz and, and uh, started working on kind of the, the historical lineage of farms there for the, from Alan Chadwick through Molino Creek and various other uh, Camp Joys and um, cut my teeth in the late 90s, early 2000s in the Organic Farm Birth Center of, of California and um, haven't looked back since. Well, Orange County is one generation away from an agrarian community. The orange is literal um, from a citrus fruit that used to be filled through the you know through the the acres of this pretty large community. When I showed up here in, in 2008, I showed up here because this was the only organic farm in the county, and it was called South Coast Farms at the time. It's a 28-acre farm that the, that the city bought to protect it from development. Um, but it's the thing that's a beautiful wooden two-story, what would have been a mansion in 1878. That's the anchor is a historic farmhouse and a 28-acre farm. Back in 2008, it was a simplified operation with just a couple ingredients grown organically for wholesale. So not what you would see today. But nonetheless, the, the acre around the farmhouse 
was available and open and, and eager for them for opportunity. And so I um, approached the city with an idea of creating a cultural center that where it could demonstrate relationship to the land and, and to one another through workshops and field trips and demonstration gardens and various you know, culinary programs. And yeah, we just sort of jumped into a, a, a you know, breaking ground in 2008, literally a, a true dirt lot, which now is an ecological oasis for children um, and have since expanded our one acre to 28 acres five years ago. We describe our, our farming uh, here as regenerative. And what that really means in a broad spectrum is that we are in deep stewardship of the land. And so the farm is an ecosystem. Um, so it, it has all of the healthy elements that you would find in a healthy natural ecosystem. This is, this is an agro-ecosystem. Agro and the other important pillar in our category, we don't raise animals outside of our 150 chicken flock for eggs, but caring for the animals, but most importantly, it's caring for our, our, the farm workers and the team that stewards the land. Uh, and we pay living wages to those that, uh, that are in service to, to the organization. The, the regenerative is an updated lexicon for how we think of the farm as an ecosystem rather than an extraction or uh, you know, just a simple business opportunity. This is really about how do we create food production in a way that, that seeks harmony with the land and with the people. And, and the regenerative organic certification um, has been super beneficial for us while we're over 20 years into this lifestyle and this, this business practice um, of growing food. It helped us get clear on what are living wages for our farm team. It helped us get clear on measuring the organic matter in the soil and the health of the ecosystem and the direction that we want to take it. Because that's our core mission is that we can eat with our values, which is every time we, we make that choice to put something in our mouths, we can choose to support farmers and we can choose to support the stewardship of the land that doesn't compromise soil health and or future generations. If people want to experience the Ecology Center, of course, the best way is to come here. We really are the, an ecological oasis and we have programming uh, throughout the week um, for various ages. We launched a cafe called Campesino, which means farmer in Spanish. And the, the cafe is really about bringing dignity to our farm community, our farmers and our farm, and building a, a revenue stream to continue to grow the capacity of, of our work. My favorite dish that I think signifies the, the menu the best is, and the easiest one to hit on is called Campesino. It's basically a, it's a, it's an abundant platter that celebrates the taste of the farm. We've been growing a, a special heirloom blue corn that we call San Juan Blue. Um, so we grow an heirloom blue corn that turns into tamales. So that's one of the features on the Campesino is our blue corn tamales uh, filled with, uh, the, right now the, the, it's filled with summer squash and wajillo puree that we grow every ingredient on the menu. Also on the Campesino is a little taste of our, you know, one of our featured salads. One of my favorite is, is just our green goddess. So it's just our um, Salanova with with a tahini herb dressing with a nice crunchy cover crop seed mix that we that we make. Um, there's a whole bunch of ferments on there that come from the fermentation lab. Our heirloom beans are a feature on that platter as well. We, we one of the we grow about four varieties of heirloom beans in fairly large quantities, so they're very unique and very delicious. And then there's a small offering of fruit, whatever's coming off the farm. So. That's a nice way to start the cafe experience is just kind of get what the, you know, farmer's choice, we like to say. You know, it's a, it's a farmer-driven 
conversation here, not a chef-driven one, though. We have some of my favorite chefs um, on, on our team. Evan Marks is the founder and executive director of the Ecology Center in San Juan Capistrano. If you want to experience the Ecology Center firsthand, their farm stand is open seven days a week, and the cafe is open for breakfast and lunch Wednesday through Sunday. You can follow their events and happenings at theecologycenter.org. Coming up, as more and more land in Michoacan was deforested for avocado groves, one group of people banded together to ban all avocado production in their community. The story of the anti-avocado militia next. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. It's not easy to reach Charan, a small town in the mountainous highlands of Michoacan, a state in south-central Mexico. And once you arrive, there's no guarantee you'll be able to get in. The area is heavily fortified, with armed guards manning checkpoints. Why all the security? Avocados. No, the armed personnel aren't guarding a particularly valuable crop of the ancient fruit. In fact, it's the opposite. This small town, located in the heart of Mexico's avocado country, has completely banned avocado farming. Chiran's leaders are determined to make sure no one starts growing avocados on the sly. Journalist Alexander Salmon found a way in. He wrote about Chiran and the anti-avocado militias of Michoacan for a recent issue of Harper's Magazine. Hi, Alex. Hey. Michoacan is the most important avocado-producing region in the world. Four out of every five avocados consumed here in the U.S. come from there. It's a multi-billion-dollar trade. Why are the people of Chiran so keen to keep it out? Yeah, it's an economic boon for the region in a lot of places. It's you know, Michoacan is a, is a very poor state and a very dangerous one as well. But in this little territory, it's, it's like a hundred-mile stretch where this incredible percentage of the world's avocados are grown, which is obviously, you know, a remunerative cash crop. And Chiron is in fierce opposition to it. And, and that's because of the environmental costs. And, and those costs are pretty profound um, in terms of deforestation, in terms of uh, the, the, the effect of the fruit on the hydrological cycle. It's, it's a sort of drain on the water resources of the area are extreme. It's it's brought wildfires of, of kind of terrifying scale and, and brought also a lot of um, crime and cartel attention as well. So sort of for all of these reasons, um, Chiron has basically made itself into this, as you said, this heavily fortified community that is in fierce opposition to the uh, the crop that probably the region is best known for. Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, I, I, I didn't realize that avocado is such a water-intensive crop. The, the comparisons sort of vary, and um, I think probably the, the most stark one that I've come across is that a pound of avocados requires as much water as a pound of almonds, which is obviously you know what we think of as being the most extremely water-intensive crop that, that is sort of commonly consumed. But the impact of an avocado tree on on the water cycle uh, is is so pronounced. It's um, not only do avocados consume a ton of water, but the, the nature of the root structure of the tree makes it such that when it does rain, uh, it's very, very difficult for that water to to be returned to the water table to, to sort of recharge some of the, the, the aquifers of the region. So the, the wholesale sort of change from 
pine forest to avocado grove, which is so commonplace in, in the area, has, has, has really radically changed the way that the climate operates there. And the rainy season has, has shrunk from six months to three months in this area, which is a, a huge change. And that's in part because pine trees give off these, these aerosols that actually interface with cloud formations and can induce uh, precipitation. Once that's gone, that precipitation has, has gone as well. So all of this to, comes together to, to really profoundly affect the water supply. Um, we've done stories in the past on the cartel control of, of the avocado trade, but I understand that recently competition um, has grown increasingly violent, um, often used, say, at the hands of the cartels. How, how have cartels shaped agriculture in this area of Michoacan, and how did they impact Chedan particularly? I'm sure this is, you know, this is something that you guys are probably very familiar with and, and, and many, many listeners are as well, that the, the cartels obviously are, you know, sort of born of these illicit trades, the drug trade and everything else, but obviously are also sort of business syndicates, right? They're, they're interested in, in trades of all sorts that, that might enrich their holdings. And so in this particular region, you know, Michoacan, especially this part of it, is known well for uh, the methamphetamine trade. But of course, you know, there is a, another trade that does very, very well just down the road, and that's the avocado sector. And so um, avocado consumption has gone up greatly in the United States over the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, it's gone up greatly globally. I mean, we've, you know, we've seen this embraced as a menu item at fast food giants like Chipotle and Subway and all sorts of stuff. And as that sort of, as the consumer demand has grown for this for this fruit, as there's been more and more attention brought to it and the prices have gone up, the cartels have obviously been more and more inclined to get involved in this trade. And so in this particular region, illegality is sort of widespread in terms of, you know, deforestation, illegal deforestation uh, is commonplace. There's all sorts of, you know, crimes large and small going on. And, and in particular, the control of the export of this of this one crop of, of avocados is a huge, huge business interest uh, for the region. You know, the avocado sector is all within a hundred mile stretch, uh, and you have this history of of cartel involvement, and that's sort of drawn all of this into a bit of a pressure cooker, where we can see some of these trends really made explicit. You you describe Chedan as a small Arcadia government governed by militant environmentalism in the heart of avocado country. What happened twelve years ago to to inspire them to do it and to make it possible to have this kind of local government so different from all the towns surrounding it? The, the environmental radicalism on offer in Chiron is is obviously very different, I think, than some of the sort of environmental political expressions that we think of commonly, right? It's it's not like a sort of like a kumbaya environmentalism. This is like very different. It's heavily armed. It's very militarized. And yeah, the, the way this sort of came around was in early 2011, this town was plagued by deforestation already. So there was an issue with... Um, a local cartel group and the mayor of the town at that point had engaged in some what was perceived to be corrupt dealings. They were uh, deforesting the, the the pine forest that surrounds the town. 
and there was a lot of concern in the town that that this activity was going to cost them their their water source. So the the logging was taking place very close to the spring that supplied the town. The twenty thousand people were relying upon. And at a certain point, the sort of public frustration with this corruption and with the environmental threat to the region reached this boiling point. And the townspeople basically one morning launched into action. They, they took the loggers hostage. They burned their trucks. Uh, they kicked the mayor out. They, they, uh, they outlawed political parties. They shut down the town at, at its borderlines and, and sort of underwent this process of, of, of redrawing the, the state charter, of re-envisioning what this sort of civic uh, organization should look like. And at the heart of that was these you know, very, very robust uh, environmental commitments. Could you paint a picture for us of what daily life is like in Chedon, how big it is, what it looks like? You know, in a lot of ways, it's like a, a lot of small Mexican towns that you'll, you'd see in the countryside. 20,000 people live there. So it's not huge, but it's not tiny. Um, and it has the sort of general features that you would see, you know, a sort of town square. There's a church. These outdoor markets are very common. And and then the difference, of course, is that um, <laughs> the way that it's sort of policed and monitored and governed is is nothing like any of, of the surrounding areas, or, you know, save for the small handful of towns that have adopted the model here. But, you know, while you're in the town square, you can see these pickup trucks rolling through the town, which are sort of emblazoned with these terms like Gorda Bosques, which is the forest guard. And you'll see men and women in, in flak jackets and, and uh, you know, military equipment sort of riding through the town with, with rifles and, and handguns and stuff. And they are patrolling the region. The, the town is surrounded on all sides by forest. Um, and uh, they are constantly going in and out, keeping tabs on what's happening in the forest, keeping tabs on what's happening in the regions surrounding uh, to make sure that there are no incursions from the avocado sector, that there are no incursions of any kind into the forest or any sort of illegal deforestation. Without the influx of um, of money that comes from um, the avocado that happens in other towns of the same size in the area, how is Chedon able to be sustaining economically? They've devised a handful of really interesting sort of uh, civic uh, economic projects that are, that are sort of run through the public sector. They're, they're governed by the, 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 the council, the, the 12-member council that's elected every three years. Um, and so a lot of it runs through the forestry program. So they have this incredibly robust uh, reforestation program. They have this huge nursery where they're constantly breeding up um, the four separate types of pine trees that are uh, indigenous to the area. Uh, that's part of that is to, to to reforest some of the the area that's been deforested. But uh, part of it is also to sell. So they'll sell these little saplings to to landscapers to various interested groups that come actually from. From, uh, from 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 far away oftentimes for these plants and 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 once they're once they're planted and reintroduced into the environment they're able to use the the tree sap from the pine trees which can be harvested in a very sustainable way and, and sold for everything from turpentine to chewing gum to electronics the trees that naturally die or become diseased uh, are are processed in a mill and they're sold as two by fours are made into pallets. And there's a whole economic structure that's been set up that is you know, nothing like uh, the global avocado tree. It's a much smaller uh, operation, but it is in many ways sustaining and sustainable. What happens if the Ronda encounter 
um, illegal avocados in Chiran. The confines of this region are not very explicitly uh, rendered. So, you know, when you're in the forest, you know, this sort of mountainous forest highlands, the lines are, are, are not clearly drawn. And there's a lot of area that's, that's not really visible because of that, right? It's, it's you know, it's, it's fairly wild. If the Ronda encounters a, an avocado tree, not just a grove, even a single tree, they'll go to that area. If it's within the jurisdiction of Chiron, they'll chop it down immediately. They'll dig up the tree and they'll find the person responsible for it, bring them before they bring them actually to the, to the town jail and then haul them before the town council um, where they have to sort of issue an apology and explain themselves. Um, if, if that's, if it's found that they've done this repeatedly, uh, the, the state is able to even requisition the land of the person who is responsible. So the, the, the stakes are very high. Very, very quickly can the, uh, the punishment become so severe that you, that you lose your land. Well, thank you so much, Alexander. It's a really um, fascinating article. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. That was journalist Alexander Salmon discussing the anti-avocado militias of Michoacan. For a link to his Harper's Magazine story, Forbidden Fruit, head to our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, and Elena Shatkin, and to our engineers, Nick Lamponi and Hope Brush. And special thanks to Laura Kondarajan and Gary Messiha. I'm Evan Kleiman. Lately, I've become obsessed with hot chocolate in various forms, especially the Spanish-style super-thick variation that's nearly like pudding. How are you drinking it? I'll meet you back here next week for another episode of Good Food.